If you have your Bibles with you this morning, maybe a hard copy or maybe you have it electronically, go to Romans chapter 9 if you would. If you don't have a Bible, they're in the racks around you, or if you don't own one, there's free Bibles in the back of the auditorium. You can pick one up when you leave this morning. Love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Romans chapter 9, I know you're excited about that, back into Romans this week, and a little celebration. I know, it's it's, good, control yourself, it's subdued. Okay, now here's a real reason to celebrate. I'm going to give you a reason to really rejoice. Um, If you're new to New Hope, you wouldn't know that we've been working on uh, collecting funds, receiving money for building a new building. We're going to be starting in a few weeks with a construction out on East Saginaw Highway. And things are going really well with the planning stages, but we really wanted to give you an update because something monumental happened this last week here at New Hope. We've crossed a threshold, and I want you to see this slide on the screen because it'll show you we're now over $5 million. Is that not amazing? Wow. God is just doing an amazing thing. We're actually within a million dollars of paying cash for the facility. So how great is our God? This is absolutely astounding what he's doing among us. So we're very excited about that. I'm excited about what we're going to do with uh, this passage in Romans 9 this morning. I'm glad that you're here for this. Glad for our online audience who's watching right now, and they get to be part of this as well. So here's what I'd love to do. I'd like to pray with you before we step into Romans chapter 9. Would you join me in that? Father, we we want to understand you better. We want to understand your nature and your character and and your ways and who we are in relationship to that, how that that impacts our lives here on this planet. So specifically, as we come to this passage this morning, we ask that from the theological bent we take on this, trying to understand you better, that you would give us insight. Give us understanding, Father. Let us leave here today with with a, a new grasp on your ways and who you are and what you expect of us in return of that. We, we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you a question to start, and you've had me ask this question before, so I, I want to qualify it this way. Um, based on your response, if you agree with what I'm about to say, I'm going to ask you to say amen. So you got your amens on this morning? Okay, you ready for that? Okay. So here's what I want you. If, if you affirm, if you agree with this statement, say amen. God is 100% righteous. Okay. Most of you agree with that. I assume many people who read the Bible understand that. So I'm going to hold you to account on what you just said, all right, that God is 100% righteous. With that thought in mind, let me ask you this question. Have you ever judged God? I'd have to say guilty. I find myself doing that occasionally. And we fall into that pattern of behavior so easily, especially when things don't go the way that we expect they're supposed to go. God, why did you do this? How could you let this happen? Why why am I going through this? And there's a difference between questioning and asking genuine, honest questions, and then when it translates over into judging, how dare you do that to me? We, we tread on some very dangerous territory, and when that happens is because God's actions or What he carries out sometimes are contrary to what we expect. And when that happens, we are prone to judge him. Real life circumstance, true story. A man stands on the streets of Chicago. He's a believer in Jesus Christ, and it's the middle of a busy work day. 
People are making their way up and down Michigan Avenue, moving very quickly to their offices and their destinations, the places they need to get to. And while he's there, he's handing out pieces of biblical literature to individuals as they're walking by. And most individuals politely receive it. And they take it and smile and they walk on. Some put their head down and begin reading it as they're walking, and others just push it away. One particular man comes to him, takes the piece of paper and reads it, and then gets a scowl on his face because on the cover of it, it says four things God wants you to know. He takes the piece of paper and he wads it in front of the man who's just handed it to him and throws it in the gutter of the street. And he said, there's a few things I want God to know and I want him to answer for, like, why is there so much injustice in this world? Why is there so much tragedy? Why do the innocent seem to suffer and why do the guilty seem to go free? I want God to answer for that. You tell me there's a God, I don't believe it. And if there is a God, and you tell me he's fair, I don't believe that. And if there is a God, then he's the greatest sinner that's ever lived. And with a disparaging look on his face, he turns and disappears into a sea of people and moves on down the sidewalk, not even waiting for an answer. Perhaps you have individuals in your social circle who maybe not as defiantly as that, but have brought up that issue in your presence and you're not sure what to say. They question God's righteousness, and they question God's justice and his mercy. Back in 1833, Charles Simeon addressed this issue, and you've known for a long time that he's one of my favorite authors, and he said it this way, the sovereignty of God is to the proud heart of man a most unpalatable subject. Get a t-shirt made with that saying on it, right? Put that on your social status update. It's true. It is unpalatable. We don't necessarily like to think those ways, that if God's in control, why do things go the way they go? But even a casual student of the Bible knows God, by nature, is perfectly just. That's why I asked the question, do you agree or disagree that God is 100% righteous? Last time we were together in Romans chapter 9, which was early May, took a few weeks and kind of detoured away from that. We were in verses 14 through 18, and and Paul essentially raised this exact same issue. Look with me on the screen at verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And he went on to build his case, and we compared Moses and Pharaoh, you might remember if you were here at that time, and looking at how God acts with those whom he has mercy on and those whom he hardens. And by the time you get to verse 18, Paul builds this crescendo saying, therefore he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens those whom he hardens. And if you need to know more about that, go back on our website. Look, look at that because that's a very big issue. So in this section, what you find Paul doing is he takes on questions. We come into verse 19 and he takes on questions that are raised about God's righteousness. And he argues, you and I, we are saved by grace. We're saved by grace because God predestined us for salvation. But he also argues because of unbelief, some are destined for damnation. It's hard to hear. Man, that causes you to recoil as a human. That some are going to be destroyed. And in humanity, many individuals will recoil and say, that's not fair. I thought God was loving. I thought he was merciful. How can that be true? That's not fair. And critics of the truth of predestination think that they're defending God. But in that very fact, they they fail to acknowledge that we were all born falling short of the glory of God, that we've all got sin on us, 
we were born with a shortcoming, according to Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But yet, that's not fair continues to pop up. And when you hear, that's not fair, you have to say, okay, I, I have to have a response to that. What should my response be? Well, if you've got someone in your life who's saying, that is not fair, here's a, a response you need to keep in mind. If God only acted by his justice, if he only implemented his justice, no person would ever get into heaven. Thank God for his mercy, church. Yes, he is just, but he is also merciful. He is also gracious and long-suffering. So if he only acted by justice, and he is just, none of us would get in. So Paul comes with this series of questions, and they're rhetorical questions, and they begin in verse 19, and here's the very first one you see on the screen. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? In other words, if God has mercy on whom he has mercy, according to verse 18, and, and if he acts that way on whom he desires, how can we be held responsible? How can humans be accountable if God acts unilaterally? Doesn't that remove all the basis for judgment whatsoever? Just know this, that very line of reasoning actually challenges God's justice. That actually challenges his righteousness. So consequently, for you and I, when God acts in ways that we don't understand, we are prone to judge him. And I'm going to give you a, an example of that from the Old Testament. When we read certain passages in the Old Testament, they do cause us to recoil like, wow, that's harsh. I can't believe that actually happened. Here's a hard example. When the children of Israel were set free from Egypt, God had given them a promised land, the land they now occupy called Israel. And when God sent them towards the promised land, they had to actually conquer other nations to take that land for themselves. So Joshua is leading the people of Israel in a battle, a series of battles. And God has something to say about how they're supposed to act in the midst of those battles. Here's an example, John 11, 18, Joshua 11:18. Joshua waged war a long time with all these Canaanite kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel, except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was of the Lord to harden their heart, to meet Israel in battle, in order, check that, in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. You could read things like that and go, harsh. That's a loving God? That's a God who's merciful? These directives, these commands seem utterly cruel. So to a finite mind, we are prone to accept or to allow what fits our preconceived idea of justice, almost exclusively based on our life circumstances, based on the things that we've gone through. So when God takes certain actions, we're prone to judge him by a very finite, sin-tainted standard. Paul's point is, you can't do that. It's inappropriate for the creation to respond to the creator as though we have wisdom to judge him. So that's where he goes in verse 20. Follow on the screen, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? 
Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? If you actually read the original language, the way that was written, Paul's retort is like, blasphemy, how dare you go there? You're going to deny God the right to hold man accountable, yet at the same time, in the same breath, you're going to accuse him of injustice? He supports this with some imagery from the Old Testament. He leans back into Isaiah and Jeremiah when they use the imagery of the clay and the potter. Let me give you the first one from Isaiah 64, 8. Now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. Isaiah starts the imagery, but Jeremiah, he really kind of develops it. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 18. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Let's bring it forward into 2018, church. Let's imagine that this morning you ate breakfast at your home, and before you left home to come to church, um, you did your kitchen duties, and you, you took your dirty dishes, and you put them in the dishwasher. And when you get home, you'll, your dishes will have run through the cycle. Perhaps they're completely clean, and you want to empty your dishwasher. And so you open up the dishwasher door, and you open up the first drawer, and you pull out the dishes, and one of your bowls begins talking to you. And it says to you, why did you put me in here with the dinner plates? See, I'm just imagining what a bowl would sound like, okay? All right, I think that's a bowl voice, all right? See, see how ludicrous that is that even a, a dish would talk, let alone that it would talk back to you? You're the owner. You, you put it in there because you have the power to put it in there. You can associate it with anything you want to associate it with. Paul's point is to an infinitely greater degree, God is our molder. So it's far more arrogant to question God's justice than for a clay bowl to talk to the purposes of the one who made it. Can't go there, Paul's saying. So hear this, to fully understand God, to fully understand his actions, we'd have to be equal to God. And that's more absurd than a dish talking back to you out of the top of your dishwasher. Here's what's crystal clear coming out of this passage. Whatever the sovereignty of God means, in all of its fullness, it cannot mean that he chooses humans to become sinful. A holy God is not responsible in the slightest way whatsoever for the sinfulness of the people that he created. Let me back that up with Scripture. Look at me on the screen at James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, obviously, you and I are not jars of clay. Jars of clay don't have the breath of life in them. It's in you. Jars of clay don't have the intellect. They don't have the, the, the ability to reason. You have emotion. You also have free will. Therefore, you have the ability to rebel like a pharaoh, like a pharaoh shaking his fist in the face of God. But equally true, it's God who determines whether or not a person becomes a Moses or a pharaoh. By that, I mean Moses and Pharaoh didn't get any choice in the matter whether or not they were born at a certain place in time. They didn't get to choose their mama and their daddy. They didn't get to choose their genetic makeup. 
Those are the things that are in the hands of God. However, that reality doesn't exclude us from our responsibility. I say that because Pharaoh had awesome responsibility because he had awesome privilege. How many of us would love to see the 10 miracles that God performed in the land of Egypt? Pharaoh had a chance to learn about God and to trust Him, yet he chose to rebel. But even so, Pharaoh was still used by God for God's purposes. Apart from that, he'd never appear on the pages of history. I want you to notice what's going on here. Paul does not attempt to make any excuses for the 100% righteousness of God, the justice of God. He's not trying to explain the perplexity of it. He simply does this. He's respecting your intellect, that you are an intelligent being. And so he brings questions forward that are worthy of this subject. And here's what he's going to do next. This is where it really takes a turn. He throws us a bone by bringing forward the question of all questions. There's a conundrum that many people get confused by, and this is it. God, if you're sovereign, if you're righteous, if you're just, if you're in control of everything, why did you allow sin to exist in the first place? Why is this all here then? Why is there so much tragedy? Why did you allow this into your universe in the beginning? Why didn't you just wipe it all out? That's where Paul goes in verse 22. What if, this is one of my favorite questions in all the Bible, because he proposes something that's actually a reality. What if God, although willing, number one, to demonstrate his wrath, and number two, to make his power known, Paul says, then God hit the pause button. What if, instead of doing those things, he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? We're looking at two reasons, among others, why God allowed sin into this world. The word that we need to really bear down on, because it's such a big question and understand, is this word willing. Because in the Greek language, the word willing means way bigger issues than what it does in the English language. The word willing to us is kind of being indifferent. We kind of would treat it as though it's something we simply allow. Let me visualize it for you this way. Imagine here it is at the beginning of summer, and you've decided, you know what, for the next three months, I'm not going to have any ice cream. I had way too much ice cream over the course of the winter. I'm just going to stay away from it for the rest of the summer. I won't have any until next September. I'm going to go through the summer with no ice cream whatsoever. And you find yourself walking down a sidewalk, and coming out of an ice cream store are two of your good friends, and they're holding an extra ice cream cone, Right? And they say to you, you know what? We just saw you coming down the sidewalk, and we thought you would love this, so we bought you an extra ice cream cone. Here you go. Now, what do you do in that moment? In that moment, you say, well, okay, I'm willing. I'll do it one more time. See, we're willing because we're indifferent. We use the word willing loosely in the English language. I'm willing to go there. I'm, I'm simply going to allow it. But in the Greek language, that's not at all what it means. This particular willing is the word that you see in your notes this morning. You see it on the screen, and it's this word thalo. And, and it actually means to be determined. There's something bigger going on here. God's determining something. If you go to the Hebrew language, it actually means he's delighting in something, meaning he's disposed towards it. So I want you to catch what Paul is writing here. 
He's saying that God, and this is really going to mess with some of you, God determined to allow sin, here's what's going to mess with you, because it gave opportunity to just demonstrate his wrath. What? what are you saying, Mark? One of the reasons God allowed sin into this universe is because it gave him opportunity to put his wrath on display. Help me with that. How, how do I understand that? Well, let me rationalize this with you, church. Could you ever, ever, ever understand the grace of God if you didn't understand the wrath of God? Grace wouldn't mean anything to you. Grace is insignificant except in light of future destruction. We sing in our society amazing grace. You see it sung secularly in many places. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Well, why is it amazing? It's amazing because the contrast to it is the destruction that would be there without the grace of God. So with God, we're seeing in Scripture that he's determined to allow sin because it gave him opportunity to demonstrate his wrath. This is a bit of a head scratcher, but hear me out on this. God is glorified in displaying his wrath as much as he is glorified in displaying his, his grace. I'm going to flesh that out with you in the next couple minutes. Dr. John MacArthur was looking at the same passage, and I wanted you to see his quote about this particular passage. He said it this way, both of those attributes comprise his divine nature. Both of the attributes, meaning grace and wrath. Both of those attributes comprise his divine nature and character, which are perfectly and permanently self-consistent and are worthy of adoration and worship. Can you imagine worshiping God for his wrath? Now, there's a worship song you don't hear too often, right? Like 500 years ago, I think Martin Luther wrote a song that had to do with God's wrath, but you're not going to sing too many songs today that have to do with God's wrath. Praise God from whom all wrath flows. No, that doesn't work in my head. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Yet when you go to the book of Revelation, you find many of the individuals in eternity praising God for the way he demonstrates all of his attributes, including his wrath. Worthy are you for your vengeance, we're told the Bible says in Revelation. Here's Paul's argument that's fleshing out here. God has every right to act in judgment. But according to verse 22, but because of mercy, he endured with much patience. Endured what, Mark? Well, he endures, mercy, uh, he endures hatred. He endures rejection. He endures the guy on the streets of Chicago who says, that God's not fair. That's your God. I don't want anything to do with him. He endures rejection all the time. He endures because he's not willing that any would perish. He endures while he's waiting for this time of repentance. Here's what verse 22 says. He endured vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And I would agree with you, that's one of the uglier verses in the Bible. Because we're talking about humans here, real living, breathing human beings who according to Scripture are going to face destruction. They're going, to, they're going to know the wrath of God, according to Scripture, prepared for destruction. How? By rejecting Him. I hear this really, really clearly. It is not that God makes humans sinful. Rather, what's going on here is He leaves them in their sin unless 
they turn to Jesus. Unless they come to God for mercy. So that makes this word prepared really, really important. And deliberately, I asked you to open your Bibles this morning because I think you should circle a word. It occurs twice in the verses you're going to be looking at, and it's the word prepared. There's two ways the word prepared is being used here in verse 22 and in verse 23, and you're going to see that in just a moment. So hear how it's used in verse 22. In verse 22, the word that's used prepared is actually rendered as a passive word in the Greek language. It's, it's what theologians call the middle voice. So it's not indicating that God's the one that's doing this. God's not the one doing the preparing. This is a passive voice here. So we need to picture it this way. It is not as though God is sitting in eternity next to some human assembly line, and he's got a shelf called annihilation next to him, and he pulls individuals off and say, oh, that one, annihilation. Oh, that one, annihilation. That one, annihilation. Don't picture it like that. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God who says, I am not willing that any would perish. What he's speaking of here in verse 22 are those who refuse to hear the word of God, and they refuse to believe that Jesus is Lord, and by that action, they are preparing for their own destruction. They're prepared by their own rejection of God. So the destruction being spoken of here is the work of humans, unless that human turns to God for mercy. And when you come to verse 23, it's exactly the opposite Verse 23 is incredibly beautiful. It's a huge promise. And this is where the light gets a lot brighter. Go with me there to verse 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now hear this. God allowed. We're playing back into why did God allow sin? We already hit the first one. God allowed sin to demonstrate the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. God allowed sin to demonstrate the riches of his glory by imparting grace on you, vessels of mercy. This is an exact match for Ephesians 2, 6. I bet some of you have memorized that verse before. Let me remind you of what it says. Look with me on the screen. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's why. So that, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Who did he do that for? Well, that's you, church. You lifted the cup this morning, you lifted the bread and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's you, you're the vessel of mercy. That's who he did that for. You could say this morning, for me, that's, that's for me he did that for. Sometimes I find it just really helps to say something out loud like that. How about if we say for me on three? One, two, three, for me. He did that for me. I'm a vessel of mercy these ones that he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, here's the other use of the word prepared. I told you to identify the first one prepared. I want you to see why it changes here. It says in verse 23, the ones that he prepared for glory. He prepared beforehand. Now the verb prepared actually becomes what's known as an active voice. 
Now, I know you students in here, you sit in classrooms all week long. Don't tune me out on this. Don't, don't tune me out when you think that I'm going to English class. There's a difference going on here. There's a reason why you study language the way that you do. This particular word has meaning in the Greek language. It becomes an active voice because all of a sudden, there's a subject behind it. It says, he prepared, meaning God is the he, and he's the one doing the preparing here. God's the one involved at this stage. Why? Because according to verse 23, bear down with me on it, to make known the riches of his glory. See, it's all about new hope. It's all about putting God on display. It's all about the glory of God. The enormous work that God did in salvation is to put his glory on display before all. Who's the all? All all the angels in heaven. All of the redeemed saints of the Lord before all of creation, Scripture says, to put God on display in you, you vessel of mercy. Now, Scripture makes it really, really clear that no person can be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer already, you know that. You get that. You understand that. I can't be saved unless I believe in Jesus Christ. And because of that, I'm destined for eternity, and I get my ticket, I get my ticket to heaven Because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, he died for my sins. But, I want you to hear this, but the primary purpose of salvation is not what it brings to you. It's not that it brings salvation to those who are saved. The primary purpose of salvation is that it brings glory to God. First and foremost, nothing else brings glory to God like him acting in the way that he acts. So this is Paul's way of saying, get over yourself, new hope. It's about you, but it's not about you. It's about him. It's about everything that he's done, and he brings glory to himself, and you get the benefit of it. I just want you to leave here this morning with a thought that's really, really clear in your mind, especially if you've got people in your social circle who are confused about this God when people say he's just, and they don't think that he is. Hear this. God is not unjustly condemning. We as humans have no claim on him. We have no claim whatsoever. If we are saved, it's only because of his mercy and his grace, which he gave us through Jesus Christ. If you're new to church, I want you to hear this as you go out the door. God makes no distinction whatsoever based on race, based on background, based on nationality, based on your status, or even based on your morality. So that means whatever sin you might have committed in the past, whatever sin you haven't committed yet in the future, even those things are not the primary separator. The distinction that separates you is whether or not you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That alone is what takes all of your sins in the past and your sins not yet committed and wipes them out as far as the east is from the west. God said, I'll do that for you and I'll remember your sins no more because I'm a God of mercy. That's a story worth telling people. So I'm going to pray for you right now that way, that you would be bold to respond. The next time you hear somebody challenge God's justice and his righteousness, 
that you could speak into that situation by saying, well, no, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, I know he's 100% righteous. Let's pray, church. Father, I thank you for these who have gathered here on this morning in June. And for those who are watching online right now, for those who will join the church later that might watch this later, God, that each of us would be impacted by the power of your word, not not the power of me, but the power of your word that it's spoken and, and that your Holy Spirit brings it to life. God, use it for the purpose it was intended you said that you, you can cause it not only to be alive, but that it can pierce the heart, that you can do surgery on us. So I pray, Father, that as you send us out right now, that you will have indeed done that. that as a result of hearing your word, we will speak more boldly of you, and we will defend you. You are just, you are righteous, and you are worthy of all praise. And praise you in the matchless name of our soon-coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.